We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Bills make me wanna. Buffalo Bills wide receiver Zay Jones and pay attention to this footage because he's going to show you what he's going to bring to the table as a wide receiver in the NFL. You're going to see quickness and you're going to see vision. Pay attention to where his eyes are once he gets into the open field right here on top of the wide receiver. Watch him track the ball all the way down. High points the ball, gets in the end zone. Here he is inside release making a move across, running the dig route, eyes on the ball, turns around flips his hips and gets upfield. Check out this right here. Crosses the face, aggressive. Eyes on the ball, trapping it with his body. This young man had 399 catches. That is the most in college history. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Rock Pile Report Podcast. I'm Drew Gear, your host, Buffalo Bills season ticket holder. That is my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Nate Burleson from NFL Network trying to talk about why he thinks Zay Jones is some kind of impact player or that he's fantastic. I don't buy it. I'm not sold. I'm not happy with with the turnout from this draft. Yeah, and it was known when you said welcome. Because you're angry, <laughs> legitimately angry. I, I, We're less than a minute into the show, and you're already angry. I'm going to finish the rest of this beer. All right, that's what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to open another one, and then we're going to proceed. So what I want to say here, folks, is that I'm not happy. I, Nate Burleson, he can go on and he can tell you. You heard it. You know, he's trying to tell you. You're crossing the face. He looks fearless. He did this. He did that. I'm not buying the fact that this guy's worth a second-round pick. I'm not. I'm not happy with the way this turned out, and that's going to be part of the focal point of tonight's show. You know, we've got a lot of draft talk to go over, and luckily, we have a couple guests on hand, both uh, Kyle Smith from AFC East Bros Podcast, our most celebrated guest, <laughs> and Dean Kindig from DraftTech.com are both going to come on the show tonight to try to talk to us about the draft, and Dean's we'll going to try to talk to, talk to talk you me off, off the f- ledge. <laughs> I don't. I'm not on a ledge because oh. because I don't know these players. So just show up in August, perform well, and make the Bills better. Please, 
I want to be able to legally drink and watch the Bills play in a playoff game. And there it is. All right. Two beers in. Let's do this thing. We're going to start off as we always do with the Buffalo Bills news update. The Bills have announced the hiring of a new general manager. They cleaned house after the draft, releasing both the pro and college scouting departments, along with former GM Doug Whaley. True to their word, the Pagulas have wasted almost no time in trying to find his replacement so that they can try to start rebuilding that front office, who literally, I mean, they've excavated every bit of personnel short of Jim Manos and Jim Overdorf. Correct? Sure. I mean, those guys are the only, I mean, Pagula said it himself that their their futures will be up to the next GM. Outside of that, they've decimated the front office. And now they've announced that Brandon Bean is going to be the next Buffalo Bills GM. I like it. I've seen all of his movies. <laughs> Contrary to you know Chris's sarcasm, this is exciting news. And while we here at the Rock Power Report are still gathering information on who Brandon Bean actually is, what he's done with his career, and so we can have a truly expansive conversation on the hiring and what he's going to bring to the table for our franchise, I want to take things in a little bit different direction than I think a lot of people are taking it. I want to compare his credentials to those of the men that the Pagulas passed over just to see what it might have been about him specifically that they prioritized in making him the finalist for the job. Now, first and foremost, and I'm going to screw his last name up, Brian Gutenkunst. I don't know how you pronounce that, but he, he was a Green Bay's director of player personnel. He also invented Germany. <laughs> I'll say that he's been a member of multiple Super Bowl and playoff teams. He was a candidate for the job. He interviewed with the Pagulas. He's part of a GM tree. Okay? They, they've produced GMs like Reggie McKenzie out in Oakland, John Dorsey in Kansas City. I like it. Both of those guys were credited as being instrumental towards bringing the respective franchises back to prominence. He was a finalist for the GM position out in uh, San Francisco with the 49ers. The only real concern that I could find anywhere online for Gutenkunst is that he maybe is oversold given the fact that they've, I mean, during the most recent years of his tenure, they've had Aaron Rodgers. I mean, he can cover up a lot of Band-Aids. You know, they haven't fielded competitive defenses. Their defenses have perennially for the last couple of years been in the bottom of the league. But their offense does enough to keep them in football games. And I think that, but I think that the work he does and what that team has accomplished is why his name keeps coming up in connection with GM jobs around the league. The next candidate is Trey Brown. Now, here's a former associate of McDermott's when it comes goes going back to his days with the uh, Philadelphia Eagles. He's the current director of college scouting for the Philadelphia Eagles. He is the youngest GM candidate in the entire league at just 32 years old. I mean, the guy's my age, and he's interviewing for GM jobs. Why can't you? Well, because I drink too much. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> Drinking on the job is frowned upon. It's frowned upon in that establishment. And so, unfortunately, that's not a job I'm allowed to hold. Now, 
Trey Brown has been referred to by some analysts and some writers out there as a Theo Epstein type. If you guys are out there familiar with baseball, who's young, but he's very analytical. And, you know, he's been instrumental. And, you know, Theo Epstein, he went out and he he built, okay, he built the Red Sox into a into a contender and into a perennial winner. And the Cubs. And then he went to the Cubs and a couple of years ago, people laughed when they signed him, and they just won a World Series. So when people say that Trey Brown strikes them as that type of analytical mind, you have to take that with a grain of salt. You, know, you have to give it some some gravity. He's well-connected, and he's worked with both Philadelphia and the Patriots as a personnel man, even though he's so young. I don't want to say it like this because, again, there's no... I don't want to say this and have anyone out there think that there's any kind of racial motivation. I think that considering how quickly they called him in for an interview and then called Brandon Bean back for a second interview, I I just feel that the Pagoulas may have used Trey Brown as the Rooney Rule candidate. I think that happens with almost every candidate, whether it's front, See, off, front office or coaching. It always happens. See, but I hate every that. time there's a coaching hire, I look at that when they interview a uh, a black front office member or a black coach for head coach or front office. They're just doing that to to appease to the Rooney rule. Yeah, but you that, look at but, but but you look at some Mike Tomlin. Mike Tomlin's a perfect example of why you can't. I think he's just, the reason why there is the Rooney, Rooney rule. Well, absolutely, and, and color should be no race, ethnicity. No, there should be no bias. If you have a if you have an analytical mind and you have a mind for the game, and you have the qualifications, then you're right. Your your race shouldn't matter. I'm sorry, it shouldn't. And I, I just I get a bad taste in my mouth when I see that. I do. Can I be honest with you, Chris? I get a bad taste in my mouth when I that, see him. When I saw quickly, when I saw we were hiring or we were not hiring, but we were interviewing Trey Brown, the first thing in my head was this is to appease the Rooney rule. But I, I see and I almost that's where I almost feel like the Rooney rule does a disservice to candidates of a certain ethnicity or one ethnicity or another. It's just it's front it frustrates me because to be honest, I heard a lot of good things about Trey Brown. And yes, he is only 32 years old. So maybe he isn't as experienced in all of the different realms of football that you would like. No, that's why I probably wouldn't have hired I him. I wouldn't have for, hired him either. For being 32. And I'm hoping that that's the reason he didn't get the job, is that he doesn't have the expansive. I mean, you're talking about Brian Gutenkunst spent 20 years with the Green Bay Packers. And now our current candidate, Brandon Bean, now our, he was the former assistant general manager of the Carolina Panthers. He has familiarity with Sean McDermott. He was well-regarded around the league and spent 20 years working his way up the ranks in Carolina. That's started, exactly why Trey Brown didn't get it. He said it. 20 years for being working his way up to assistant GM. Trey Brown's got like 10 to 15 more years of climbing that ladder to get his general manager position. Well, whatever the case is, when you look at Brandon Bean's resume, it says that he was well-regarded around the league. He has those 20 years of experience. Panthers fans seem genuinely pissed off at the idea of losing him, which has to be a positive sign. If Panthers fans know who their assistant GM is, I mean, you look at their situation. Dave Gettleman is their current GM, but he's 66 years old. 
He just got the job as a GM a few years ago. So he's clearly not going to give that up anytime soon. I mean, he just fielded a team that went to a Super Bowl. So given that, it made sense that Brandon Bean kind of saw the writing on the wall and said, listen, I'm not going to get a GM job anytime soon, but if someone offers me one, I know I've cut my teeth and worked and scraped and done everything for this franchise, but I may need to go somewhere else to get ahead. Right? I mean, that happens in the professional world all the time. So, I mean, I guess I, I can see why that might be a reason that Bean would have moved on from their organization. I guess when you look at some of these candidates, and you, I mean, those are the th- only three that I really thought had a serious chance of winning this job. I mean, what's the difference between all of them? You said, okay, so Trey Brown, it's experience. What's the difference between Brandon Bean and Brand- Brian Gutenkunst? It's simple. There's... Bean worked with McDermott. It's as simple as that. That's why he's hired. You worked with McDermott, and they're going to build some kind of power structure. We'll have the interview, or not interview, the press conference is scheduled for Friday. So next week on our show, we'll have audio of that, and we'll find out, as will everybody on Friday, how this structure is going to break down between Bean and McDermott and we're all going to want to know who's got final say over the roster and how that's going to work. I think, honestly, what this comes down to, <clears throat> after seeing all the qualifications of some of the you know most highly regarded candidates involved with this process, one thing sticks out. It's the ability to work with the head coach. Here's two guys who had familiarity with each other who have already said, hey, if you put the two of us in a room together, we can get along. Last week, we talked about Doug Whaley and the asshole principle, which was that if everyone, you know, Doug Whaley couldn't get along with Doug Marone. He couldn't get along with Rex Ryan. He was, apparently there was talk of him butting heads with Sean McDermott. At some point, if everyone around you is an asshole, you may need to look in the mirror because you might be the asshole. And I think that the same, I think that this you know this talk of dysfunction that's really kind of taken hold around the franchise stems from a lot of this type of stuff. So I think them going out and getting a GM that they know can work with McDermott is is familiar with him. They're on the same page. I have no doubt in my mind that McDermott signed off on this. I think that it's a sign that they're trying to squash whatever this dysfunction that people think that we're descending into. I think they're trying to just. Nip it in the bud. And Chris, that makes sense, right? Yeah. They they want to have communication through all levels of the front office and down to the coaching staff. It's I get why they hired Bean. He was the first name we heard of as soon as we fired Doug Whaley. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's familiarity with McDermott. That's, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. And, you know, next week we're going to talk a lot more. We'll have a lot more to say in depth about it once we hear the press conference and once we start to get a little, get to know a little bit more about the candidate. So that brings us to now that we finally have a GM, we can look ahead. And this right now is a critical time for every franchise in football. You know, we're talking about unrestricted free agents and undrafted free agent fits after the draft. For a team with no GM, I, I mean, every team this time of year heads into the NFL draft in hopes of plugging their roster's biggest holes. And yet, at least 40% of teams find out after the draft that they still have depth issues. 
that you, you got to find a way to address heading into training camp. So here we are. Second wave of undrafted free agency. Now, we've got a list of undrafted free agents that have signed in the last couple, you know, I'd say a week or two. But there's two of them in specific that I want to talk about. And the I mean, we're talking about undrafted free agents, though, Chris. Hello, I've never heard of you before. Now, the Bills have been widely praised for their draft class and the success that they had, but I don't see it. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm skeptical of all of the draft grades that they had. And now I'm looking at the list of undrafted free agents we've brought in, and I'm not really that excited outside of two names. Two names stick out to me. First and foremost, Austin Reckow. He's a punter. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. You're going to start the list with a friggin' punter? How drunk are you already? Not that drunk. Trust me. Reckow was worth it. Coming out of Idaho, he handled both kickoff, field goal, and punting duties. I mean, the guy doesn't have the leg to offer Hauschka a real challenge as a kicker coming into training camp. But Colton Schmidt better bring his A game to training camp. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. Reckow posted a 35.1% fair catch rate in college. That's one out of every three punts was fair caught. Which is one of the tops in the entire country. Even more ridiculous is the amount of touch that he has on his punts. 49.1% of his punts landed inside the 20-yard line. And then 28.1% fell inside the 10-yard line. You mean to tell me that almost half of his punts are pinning people back inside their own 20 from wherever they are on the field? And then on top of that, that when you get him close enough, a fifth of one out of every five punts, he's going to cough and corner you inside the ten. I'll take that field position. The uh, uh, mini camps this weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Reed will be doing the mini camp because we have a punter and then we also have a kicker mm-hmm. in. So they're going to need a snapper, and he's the only one on the team, so he'll be participating. Well, maybe later on Reed could give us a little insight to this, but I mean, ultimately. Austin Reckow was NFL.com's number one priority undrafted free agent specialist. Considering how Colton Schmidt kind of struggled last year, it makes sense that they bring in a specialist to try to push him. I this this kid just I, I mean I know what you're saying it's an it's an undrafted punter out of college it probably doesn't matter, but just looking at his raw numbers with a little bit of experience and a little bit of seasoning, he might turn out to be a quality NFL punter. And then the second name on my list is Keith Tobridge. Now, this is a guy I was legitimately excited about Tobridge as a prospect before the draft even started. I assumed he would be a player probably targeted somewhere in the sixth or seventh round by a team looking for solid depth at tight end. He's never going to wow you with his pass catching ability. Okay, he's not. But his size is ridiculous. I mean, the guy is six foot five and two hundred and sixty-two pounds. But he 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 gets out. I mean, they've lined him. You watch Louisville. I mean, he's a tight end out of Louisville. He played with um, what's that quarterback's name? Teddy Bridgewater. No, the one that everyone's raving about now. The, Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson. I don't even know if that's right. No, because <laughs> as you can tell, I didn't say that confidently. Wait for it. It's Lamar Jackson. All I know is that Keith Tilbridge, he played in that scheme with that quarterback. 
He lo- he eventually got injured, lost his starting job to Cole Hikatini, who went on to be a good tight end. But Tobridge at six foot five and two sixty two lined up a lot of times. He'd line up as a wide receiver. He'd line up just off the line. He'd li- almost as like a wing kind of a package. He'd line up as an H back. You watch the guy move, and he moves the way a tight end needs to move, but he's 262 pounds. He's fluid, which makes him an asset when it comes to run blocking. He has he struggles with technique, which is why he went undrafted, but you coach that up, and you could have an amazing addition to your tight end depth chart. I mean, you're talking about teams that like to get out and run the ball. How about a tight end who's the size of an offensive tackle who can get out in space quickly to the second level and block a linebacker. I wanted this kid before the draft. I thought we'd spend a draft pick on him. The fact that we got him as a free agent, I mean, here's what I think. I think ultimately he could latch onto our practice squad with an eye towards you know developing his technique, learning better blocking, learning better footwork, and eventually joining the 53-man roster as a run blocker who has that agility to get to the second level of a defense. As a pass catcher, I don't know what he'll bring, but I do know that considering how much we plan on running the ball, he could be an asset to this football team. And then we I want to talk about undrafted free agents out there on the market, the veteran undrafted free agent market. It starts off with Gerald Hodges. Now, he's a linebacker, and right now our linebacker core is thin and missing speed if you don't count the guys we just drafted, which I don't. I don't at all, okay? I don't expect much out of either one of the fifth-round linebackers that we drafted because I all I can think of is guys like Tank Carter, who we brought in in the fifth round who never amounted. You know, it was they, a fifth and sixth-round pick for linebackers. <laughs> Note your team's draft. I don't know if you can hear that. That's my opinion on the fifth and sixth round linebackers. Hodges is a converted safety who can not only cover, but he's got that lower body power to play against the run well. He finally got his first significant playing time in his entire career last year for the 49ers playing linebacker. And he responded with 80 tackles, three sacks and a pick. I feel like adding Gerald Hodges to our lineup would almost he, he would almost immediately become a shoe-in to start over a guy like Ramon Humber, who if any of you guys have been listening to the show the last couple weeks, I am not okay with being our starting weak side linebacker going into training camp. I think that Gerald Hodges could be this year's version of Zach Brown for our defense. I called it last year, I'm calling it this year, and I really hope the Bills take a flyer on this guy. Next up on my list is Trey Boston. Now, McDermott wasted no time when he got here in recruiting a number of depth players that he was familiar with. You know, he brought them here. I mean, you're talking about guys like... Mike Tolbert. Mike Tolbert. And um, who else? Brandon Bean. <laughs> Brandon Bean. No, there was a... I, what was the other player's name? It's escaping me right now, but I know we signed him from the Panthers as well. I don't know. If you know it, call in. <laughs> Ultimately, what we're here at is that McDermott, he, you know, he, he's trying to instill a certain mentality here. He brings depth. He brings experience. He wants guys with who knows he, the way he does things and wants to be able to coach that to the rest of the roster. Now, you look at a strong safety like Trey Boston. Trey Boston might just be another one of those cases. He played for McDermott for the last few years in Carolina, so he would come in already understanding the basics of the scheme. He may not be a day one starter, 
but he would provide invaluable depth at a position that we are woefully thin at and that the Bills neglected to address at all during this year's draft. I mean, if you want to talk about strong safeties who can play in the box, this is a guy who's six foot one and two hundred and five pounds. He's got some coverage ability, and he's got a willingness to really lower the shoulder and make some tackles. That, in and of itself, is probably what endears him most to McDermott, and which is probably why he got the interview here in Buffalo to begin with. I think adding him to our team would absolutely make me feel better about how little we have on our depth chart behind Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde going into training camp. If anything were to happen to either one of those guys, I who's our starter at safety? Aaron Williams. Aaron Williams is actually, he's already met with the Jaguars. The Bills haven't even okay, reached out Okay, he met with him. The Bills haven't even reached out to him. I think that's a travesty in and of itself. I think Trey Boston could be a good signing for this football team. It's something that I'm, I'm really kind of hoping that they pursue. And then there's one here I'm going to throw out here. It's kind of almost an honorable mention because he's not really a free agent. Michael Kendricks. Okay, Kendricks, he's a linebacker for the Philadelphia Eagles right now. He hasn't been cut, but by all accounts, it's only a matter of time. Given his age, at 27 years old, He's $6 million cap hit, and the fact that he only saw 30 or 30 some odd percent of the team's snaps last year. The coaching staff just doesn't seem to have a use for him. They don't like him. I don't know what it is about their scheme that he doesn't fit. The, the Eagles can make his cut a post-June 1st one and save almost $4 million of his cap hit. I mean, he's already refused to restructure his deal once. I can't see why they won't do it eventually. I, I I don't picture Chris. If someone told you, "Hey, restructure your deal, or you're going to get cut," and you said no, and then the draft came, and then free agency. Well, free agency started, and then the draft came, and then after the draft, you're still on the roster, and the team came back to you and said, "Hey, you better restructure your deal, or you're going to get." Cut. Well, where's your incentive to say yes? Uh, I don't think I'd have one. I'm sure there's other teams that are willing to pay. For his services. Absolutely. No. So you, what you're going to do is you're going to play chicken with that team. You're going to do what you can to try to get your money. So Kendricks, if he is cut and he does hit the free agent market, he would bring speed to our linebacker core. He would fill that weak side linebacker role for us. And at 27 years old, likely has enough left in the tank to make a significant impact on a one to two year deal. I think that if that happens, the Bills would be crazy not to pursue him. I know we're just speculating. We're going to close out undrafted free agent talk with a name that Bills fans should be familiar with, and that's Chris Gregg. Okay, don't get me wrong. I like O'Leary, and I do love the signing of uh, Keith Tobridge. Baby hands, O'Leary. <laughs> that being said, Gregg last preseason looked like he was finally playing like the tight end that we envisioned him being when we drafted him. Okay, I, I mean, you saw what he was bringing to the table in 2016. He was blo- he blocked a punt for a score or a safety in the Colts game. He was catching touchdown passes. He was getting open. He was working as he was working well in the special teams coverage units. Greg was doing everything that you would ask from a professional tight end who's, who maybe isn't your number one tight end, but he could absolutely be your number two. 
Yeah, and then he got Nancy Kerrigan by D'Angelo Hall oh, in the that, Washington preseason game. That bullshit hit that that literally knocked him out for an entire season when he was just seemed to be hitting his peak. Okay, and now by all accounts, he hasn't. His phone's not ringing. No one is reaching out to Chris Gragan. I don't understand it. Someone explain this to me. <laughs> Oh, it's a throwback to an old bit that Chris loves. He thinks I sound like Elf when I say it. You don't necessarily sound like an Elf as you sound like Alf with an A. Elf like A, the the alien? Yes. In any event, I I just think that... <sighs> Breathe, Goose. I'm just, just sorry, get all worked up over say it. Say it with me. Goose Fraba. Goose Fraba. All right, I feel better. Now I'm open th- a beer! <laughs> I think that Chris Gregg would likely come back on a one-year prove-it deal if he were healthy enough to do so. And I think that he would bring much, much more to our roster than some, some guy named Logan Thomas, who's basically a poor man's quarterback turned tight end, kind of like E.J. Manuel should have been. Uh, Logan Thomas Thomas will never bring anything to this Buffalo Bills roster in a meaningful way. I I mean, I don't mean to disparage the guy, but I'm sorry. You're a converted quarterback into a tight end. You're an athlete, but you're not a football player. Chris Gregg last offseason looked like a football player, a good one. I see no reason for the Bills to not at least take a flyer on him heading into training camp if he can pass a medical exam. So, since it seems like every other day we're celebrating or raising awareness for some kind of bullshit nonsense on social media, I'm personally declaring the rest of May Chris Gregg Awareness Month. Multiple times a week, I'm going to be tweeting and Facebook messaging the Buffalo Bills. Links to what are, in many cases, their own highlight videos and photos of Chris Gregg in order to make sure that they at least, you know, at least someone someone over there in that franchise at least knows that the guy's out there and that he's still trying to play the game of football. I, If, we, if he's healthy, <laughs> I think he could be a much better option for our football team than anything we have on hand is depth. And I encourage you guys out there to join me in this effort. You know, let's, let's, let, let's just try to take this and see if we can get, gain some traction on it. The guy deserves it. We're going to move on to the poll of the week. And the poll of the week came down to most important undrafted free agent position. Just one poll. Those things aren't scientific. This week, we asked fans on Twitter and Facebook which positions they thought were the most important for the Bills to address during the second wave of NFL free agency. You know, given the results of the draft, now that we know how it all played out. We need a linebacker! <laughs> I was going to say the results weren't far off from what I expected. Taking a look at everything. Now from the Bills Fanatics Facebook page, Bills and Jills, Buffalo Bills fans only, Buffalo Stampede, Bills 13th Man, and our own personal Twitter account. I took account of everything, you know, 385 total votes. The vote shook out. 56% of the vote said that weak side linebacker was the biggest hole and the most important undrafted free agent position for us to address going into free agency, the second wave of it. 
The next up on the plate is free safety at 19.2%. Strong safety came in at 16, and defensive tackle came in at 8%. So really, people don't think that we really need any more help at defensive tackle, which I feel like could be a sneaky need for this team going into next season, considering how many two-tackle fronts we're going to have to put out there. But ultimately, everyone, I, I mean... Everyone agreed with me personally that weak side linebacker might be the biggest hole on this team right now. I mean, who knows? Who who the hell is Ramon Humber? Oh, I know. He was the guy who was cut from the Saints the year after they had the worst defense in NFL history. So if that guy wasn't good enough for them to play 4-3 outside linebacker, why should we believe he'll be anything for us? I, I, I don't get it. I mean, it's one this this glaring need at linebacker is one of the reasons. Yeah, uh, it's one of the big reasons that I kind of I wasn't a huge fan of this draft. You know, I mean, contrary to the opinions of everybody else out there who thinks it's just because I was mad about Alabama's Reuben Foster not being drafted. <laughs> Gritz loves he loves bombing me with the Dixie horn. I just think that I see. Pre-draft, I saw that weak side linebacker was going to be a problem for us. And then I got angry seeing that we didn't really do anything meaningful to address it. And that's why I had such low marks on our draft. Now, hopefully our first guest tonight can do some work to try to change my opinion on that. You know, as we move into our second installment of Buffalo Bills draft recap, round number two. And tonight we have none other than Dean Kendig. From DraftTech.com, here with us tonight to talk about round two and the selections we made. Dean, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How about you? (laughs) Not too bad. I'm on my third beer. We're having a good time. So, first and foremost, you work for DraftTech.com. You are their Buffalo Bills. I mean, I I don't want to oversimplify it. I mean, I know your profile says you're editor-in-chief. You're their Buffalo Bills guy, correct? That's right. There are 32 analysts. I'm the Buffalo Bills guy. You are the Buffalo Bills guy. So pre-draft, I know you guys, you know, if anyone's ever out there has ever been to drafttech.com, you'll see that they do a ton of analysis. And a lot of it's, you know, centered around, I mean, the, around film study, around data. You know, there's a lot of analytics that go into it. How do you, I mean, what's your approach to all of that? Um, one of the things that everybody has to do is that they, every week they fill out um, team needs. So every position, uh, you rank the uh, team needs at, uh, uh, at every position. And we even subdivide, for instance, the defensive line into three-tech, one-tech, five-tech, uh, edge players, um, any, of, any of that. We do that every week. And then, a, and then there's a big board squad, and they put together a 400-name list of college players that are coming out. And um, there is a, um, a VBS program that actually um, – computer program that prints out a computer mock based on everybody's team needs and everybody's um, – uh, uh, big board. So we have we we end up with a a mock draft that everybody should like, but then somebody says, "Well, I forgot to uh, I forgot to um, lock out Joe Mixon." 
Whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll, I'll level with you. When that pick came on the board, I mean, we were doing a TV show over at Batavia Downs for the draft. And when that pick came up, you could hear people booed. People in oh the, people in the venue who well, of course were, it's going to be Cincinnati. I mean, they, they opted to take Pac-Man Jones <laughs> after Tennessee dumped him. I just felt like as far as Joe Mixon goes, if you're a football team and you're trying to change the culture, I mean, the Cincinnati Bengals had, they were known for their kind of jailhouse, toxic kind of. Perfect. You know, they were just known for being a franchise full of guys who were constantly in trouble. So then I felt like they had done a lot to try to change that over the past few years, but now it seems like they're sliding right back into it. Guys like Mixon, guys like Vontez Perfect, um, Pac-Man Jones. It's these kind of low-character guys who I almost think you can't have a healthy locker room. I mean, I've talked to guys who play high school football, who have played college football. Some of them, you know, they're trying to make pro football, who have flat-out said that they don't want a guy like that in their locker room at all because they think that what that guy did, regardless of his reasoning for it, they, they just can't they just can't make peace with it. I feel like you have to know that you have a solid head coach and a solid leadership group in place to take a kid like Joe Mixon. So to, right. to see them take that guy with the other troublemakers they have on their team already, I just don't know how that's going to pan out at all. Well, we know that, for instance, they, they had interest in Caleb Brantley, and then they took him off their board. Um, he, he was also on my lockout list at the end, along with Mixon. Oh, yeah. So then after the draft, Dean, I got to ask, so after you guys do all this and you guys come up with these draft boards and everything else and all this other analysis you do, what do you guys do after the draft over at drafttech.com? Um, one of the things that we're doing now is we're looking at our, our product and saying, well, what else could we do? And um, a couple of things that we've, we've batted around, one is, is to have uh, reader interaction that you, you thumbs up or thumbs down every um, mock draft pick. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, at once upon a time, we had a, a simulator, um, and this year we had to use FanSpeak simulator because ours uh, um, went south with a uh, server crash. So, oh wow! Yeah, it was it was major. So now, as a Bills fan, these are some standard questions we ask of every first-time guest on the show. Just some things that, to kind of help our fans get to know you more as a person. So. You've been a Bills fan for a long time. I mean, I know yeah. on your Twitter page it says you've been a fan since the Rock Pile days. You know, yeah. which is you know, I I'm sure you've seen our logo. We kind I I like that. You know, that's where we started. I try to you know to make our logo a throwback to that because I I I love everything about this team. I love the team's history. I like the way it came to be. I like the the kinds of players that they used to have on this team. And it's the fact that Drew currently sits in Section 200, the Rock Pile, <laughs> is where we kind of came up with the name Rock Pile Report for our podcast. So See, I never, I never knew that. I, I listened to it, and I never knew that that's where it came from. So for you personally, I need your favorite moment of Bill's fandom, and I need your least favorite moment of Bill's fandom. Uh, okay. Well, my my favorite moment of Bill's fandom actually occurred at the Ralph, but not on a Sunday. Um, I, um, my wife had uh, my wife's company had the Bills as an account, and they got me as an extra in a um, Dick Sporting Goods commercial, and 
I uh, actually got my face painted. They gave me a, a uh, one of those big foam fingers, and I said, I'll never make a leaping one-handed grab in the end zone for a go-ahead TD. And that the, the whole thing ended with, but I am the Bills' 12th man advantage. So that's, that's pretty awesome. You get to be in a commercial. So I got to be in that commercial. And, um, and then, of course, um, that wasn't the end of it. They loved me so much that they put me in the background trying on sweaters for a, a Dick's Sporting Goods commercial, and that was the one uh, that had Terry Bradshaw in it. They re- and they recorded this after hours. So we actually assembled there at 10 o'clock at night. And Terry Bradshaw, he, he, he um, had a few lines in it, but he was getting bored. And, um, <laughs> and he, so he, he, he told me to go long, and I, and I caught a pass. It was right over my right shoulder. He so, just dropped uh, it right in the we, bucket for we you? threw passes back and forth uh, with Terry Bradshaw, and um, I think they actually paid me for, for uh, being an extra in that commercial. You got paid to take passes from Terry Bradshaw. That's, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Did you, did you take like a 30-degree angle cut in, in, <laughs> into the fishing department and, and, and caught it over your shoulder? Yes. I must admit, I caught every single pass from him, but every single pass was right on the money. Oh, I'm um, sure. I'm sure it yeah. was effortless for him. Yeah, it's Terry Bradshaw. It's Terry Bradshaw. So then your least favorite moment. What's one of those things that you think about during – and I mean you have a long-standing history of being a Bills fan. What's the least favorite moment for you? Well, everybody says wide right, and and I remember being with my whole family at a party where you know my brother was throwing the party at his house, and it was a you know a, a wonderful big mansion in Pittsburgh, and it said uh, – um, it came down to the end and I said, I can't even look. And I actually left the room and, and paced out in the hall, um, expecting that I would be disappointed and, and I wasn't disappointed. <laughs> and they didn't disappoint was, you on your disappointment. Oh, see, I, that one of the things, Dean, that I, I always think about is that when I was a kid, I rem- I was five, almost six. When that happened, but I, and you know how you're just old enough to remember things at that point? Oh, yeah. So one of my very first memories of just things in general, life in general, was watching a football game in the middle of the winter that looking back at it was that game, but I didn't understand what it meant at the time. And just watching my father take his shirt. Now you figure he's a guy probably in his late 20s, early 30s at this point. So he's about my age and he takes his shirt and he opens the fridge and he swipes probably four or five beers just into his shirt like a hammock. And then he opens the sliding glass door with no shoes on. I'll never forget the image of him wearing jeans and a t-shirt with no shoes on. And we still had people at our house. There was still like his friends were still at our house and he opens the sliding glass door and closes it behind him really hard and sat down on a plastic lawn chair and just started drinking beer and just staring off into space, just staring off into space on his own. And I remember saying to my mom that I wanted to say goodnight to my dad. And she just told me, she was like, listen, no, 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 (laughs) just go to bed. Go to bed. He will be in at some point to say goodnight to you. 
And looking back at it, like, I can't imagine he took that well by my standards. Because if that had happened to me when I was 30 years old, I don't know how I would have reacted. I just know that it wouldn't have been good for me or anybody within a four block radius. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I was just not, I was just numb. I was, I was stunned. It was a, it was not a good time. Oh, I can only imagine. So let's get down to the meat and potatoes of this, Dean. Player analysis. Now, going into the second day of the draft, everyone who follows this podcast knows that I was not thrilled with what occurred on the first day. You know, I think that we came in, you know, we came into this draft with a glaring need, you know, a big weakness at weak side linebacker. And to watch us pass up on possibly a perennial Pro Bowl talent when he's healthy. You know, I understand the shoulder injuries for Reuben Foster. I, I see it now that he might, you know, might miss the season, but he might not. You know, it's kind of all up in the air. I can see why they wouldn't want to gamble on that at this juncture, knowing they're firing their GM and knowing all these things. But I wasn't thrilled with the pick. You know, I've kind of warmed up to the idea of Tredavious White, and I, I like the first round pick for next season. So then came the second round of the draft. Now I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, Okay, we still have a weak, you know, this big hole at weak side linebacker, but but it's okay because now we have multiple picks. We have all of this draft capital in, you know, two third round picks, a, you know, a second round pick. We've got an extra fifth round pick. At some point, we should be able to find a guy to play that role. And then I'm watching the screen as we're sitting there at Batavia Downs, and I see that the Bills have traded up, and my stomach dropped a little bit. And then I see the pick is Zay Jones, wide receiver out of ECU. And I didn't really know how to feel about it. I mean, I know that the team has kind of touted this idea that they they felt that there was a, a significant drop-off after Zay Jones at the wide receiver position in this draft. So I, I guess I can see why they traded up. First and foremost, what are your thoughts on that decision? And I mean, let, let's talk about both of them. First off, yep. the idea yep. that well, you... We had- we had uh, we had Jones as a fringe first rounder. As a matter of fact, um, the mock the mocks at Draft Tech since January had him going anywhere from the uh, number seventeen to number thirty six. So a forty four wasn't going to get it done with him. And they knew that if uh, San Francisco and Jacksonville and Chicago, all who needed wide receivers, didn't take a wide receivers, then they they knew that uh, at about pick thirty seven the Rams, um, who who our analysts said wanted two wide receivers from that draft, uh, would probably grab him. And I was uh. I was told by the Panthers analyst flat out that um, the Panthers would have taken Zay Jones at forty. Um, he he uh, said right after that. There's a reason that that. Uh, Brandon Bean will be the next uh, GM for the Bills, and he's right. <laughs> so I so did see some of that. What we needed was a reliable, productive, healthy wide receiver in this draft, and um, we we didn't even pick up Sammy's fifth year uh, option because he wasn't reliable. Um, they went they went CB first because they. Um, I think they saw what they wanted in uh, Tredavious White. Uh, but Jones has been productive, and if that's one of the things that they were looking for, productive and healthy is exactly what he was, has been 
he had 60, 60, 60 more catches than Mike Williams <laughs> in uh, 2016. That's 61 impressive. 61 more than Cor- Corey Davis. I mean, Corey Davis was a guy who broke all, I mean, he broke the receiving yardage records. And I think that speaks to his, you know, yards after the catch ability, which, you know, which is why he was a top 10 draft pick, because he has that ability to generate yards after the catch. So I guess I can see how they would look at it and say, okay, if we're looking at wide receivers, you know, Corey Davis is that guy who has the ability to manufacture yardage, manufacture scores on his own. Mike Williams is a guy who's raw, but he's got the size to just box out cornerbacks and just win those contested balls. His catch radius is huge. Now this, right. was, now, this was the analysis on Zay Jones that I've read. He's a sure-handed wide receiver. I mean, that, that's shown by the fact that he led FBS in all-time receptions. I think he finished his career with 399 of them. Yep. Then he has experience at every wide receiver position out there. So you know that There's his the, route tree has study. to be good. Mm-hmm. He's not afraid to make tough catches over the middle. That was one that I liked. You know, when I'm going back and I'm reading all these, you know, doing all this analysis on him and I'm reading all these, you know, draft profiles and things of that nature, they, they really touted his ability to, he's fearless when he's coming across the middle of the field, which is something that you're going to need out of a premier wide receiver in the NFL. You know, you can't be afraid to take a hit in order to make a, make a big catch. Because sometimes yeah, his, you take a big catch his, and you can take it. For Roddy distance. White and Anquan Bolden, um, but with better hands. Yeah. So, I, well, so you know what? I, so, so this is where I guess it. So the, you bring up Roddy White and Anquan Bolden. Now I've seen a lot of comparisons for this player, and I've seen those comparisons which would make you think favorably on him. At the same time, I've also read that he has a thin frame and can kind of get bullied off the line of scrimmage in a press, you know, against a press defense. And that his his lack of really top end speed that he doesn't have a he gets into his top speed quickly but doesn't have that second gear to break away from coverage that yep. he's going to struggle to See, manufacture. I just not that. have to worry about that. Um, his four point four five second forty yard dash will actually be fourth um, on the team. Really. <laughs> You know, you, you'll have you'll have uh, Watkins, Liston, B, um, and um, I think Philly Brown, one of the others. Philly Brown, um, yeah, he'll be here. Well, actually, be fast uh, faster than him. Um, but what if I told you you could have um, a wide receiver with the top three ball skills in the draft who 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 dropped seventeen of three hundred and forty three catchable balls? Um, would have his college wide receiver coach follow him there, um, mm-hmm. and and would be the uh, uh, as versatile a wide receiver as you can have. Somebody that can go inside, could go outside, um, and and that would be uh, somebody that would help more in the horizontal game. Uh, they talk about the horizontal game, meaning that they're they're less likely to go downfield, but but they will go downfield to Sammy. What we need is somebody that would would um, uh, be a slightly better uh, Robert Woods. Well, and that, that was the one knock against Robert Woods is that he just couldn't ever seem to get separation. And I don't. I guess I just don't. I didn't see a lot of that from Zay Jones. And then I guess the other thing that I think of is when I see. Okay, so you traded up. And you spent some of the. I mean, they they were applauded 
league-wide for building more draft equity this year. And then yep. in one round, you took all that equity that you built and you spent it. You traded up to go get a wide receiver. Now, when I think of a, sec- a, a, a wide receiver drafted highly in the second round, I think of an Alshon Jeffrey. I think of a Jarvis Landry. I think of a guy who, in the right set of circumstances, has either the speed, the elusiveness, just the size and the physical ability to take over a football game on his own. So the fact that Zay Jones, well, he has great hands, and he has this versatility, and he has all these things, and he's apparently a a very high-character guy that that kind of fits the mold of what the Bills are going to be looking for. I just don't understand. He just doesn't fit that mold of a game-breaking player to me. And I think that that's why I'm kind of down on the pick. Now, I guess my question to you is, what can you say to me right now? You know, if you and I were sitting at the table across from each other and I said, Dean, you got to convince me that this was a good idea. Why was it a good idea to trade up to get this wide receiver? Yeah, well, in the West Coast offense, it would help the most in a horizontal game if your receivers um, can, A, win at the line of scrimmage quick enough and can catch the ball in traffic. You know that um, uh, Tyrod has one of the worst over-the-middle averages in in all of football um so get get the ball over the middle and what we're going to need for that is a um a uh, a receiver that doesn't drop the ball in traffic over the middle that's him and we're going to need somebody that has impressive body control um both in breaks and in the air at the catch point you if if you type in zay Jones. Jones breaks ankles into um, Google. You'll probably see the the videos that I have, um, where where he just um, puts C, uh, CBs on their uh, behinds. Oh no! Um, and you know what? I have seen that. So you know what? I, I mean, I guess if you if you think I mean if you think that he you're confident that he can actually produce like he did in college at the NFL level because again he's a guy who stood out at the soup he stood out at the senior bowl I will give him that and I think yeah. that's what I mean I've read it that he was a regarded as a fourth or third round pick until the senior bowl happened and then he jumped off the tape at people but one of the things that I always think about the senior bowl is that there's always I mean the senior bowl is literally tailored to fit the needs of offensive players, such as quarterbacks, such as you know, wide receivers, because they're just out there playing pitch and catch. They get a playbook. They've already seen a million playbooks that kind of look the same. Meanwhile, on defense, cornerbacks and linebackers kind of rely on each other. To have a good defense, you need cohesiveness. You need to know where your coverage behind you. If you're a cornerback, you need to know where your safeties are. If you're a linebacker, right. you need to know that you can trust your corners. So the Senior Bowl, I feel like, is more – it always seems to prop up the value of offensive players and of pass rushers, you know, because you've got tackles who don't know what the guy next to them on the offensive line is going to do. So sometimes they may make you know pass protection moves that they're not either comfortable with, that they're not used to. I just feel like the Senior Bowl alone shouldn't have boosted his draft stock as much as it did. I mean, to me, I grade this thing, I grade the pick as a B- minus with the possibility to become a C plus if we find out that we don't have a, corner, a quarterback on the roster who can utilize his skill set. 
I, so right. I, what is one your of the things that, uh, that we did find out about him is that if the ball is in the area, he will catch it. And um, that's, that's partly body control and partly um, uh, some of his um, focus, his concentration. So one, you, so one of the things that I think that will make the difference with uh, um, scouts is of catchable balls, how many does he catch? And uh, he was top three in that category this year. So that right. that makes me feel a little little bit better because I'm not really sure we had that other than Ro- maybe Robert Woods. Nah, even Robert Woods' hands, I mean, he was he had one big game. When he went, you figure when you have a wide receiver core that's as decimated as ours was last year with injuries, to see the him put up the stat lines he did last year and to know that he only had one real breakout game, I mean, that's just not good enough. And it definitely no. wasn't good enough to warrant the contract that he got with the Rams. So I applaud the Bills for not trying to keep him at that kind of money. But I just I I'm hoping that Zay Jones, everything I've read says that he can be a you know a better catching Robert Woods, a better version of what he brought to the table. Yeah. Like I said, he I was he, he was um, number one of all of the receivers in the in the class in receptions per game. So you know that he isn't disappearing if he has a 13.2 receptions per game average. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, <laughs> so that's that, that, that's a little ridiculous. That, that's crazy to me. So, um, and, and he caught 95% of catchable balls, um, and that's nothing. Robert Woods never did that. No, and absolutely not. So you're telling yeah. me so so you're telling me that my grade on this may be a little bit low. What is your personal grade on this pick if you had to pick A through F? Um I actually gave the pick on Draft Tech uh that day I gave it an A and I'm sticking by it. Fantastic. Now we move on to the second pick. Now here I am, I just watched the Bills trade up into the second round and I say, oh, trade up in the second round to draft a wide receiver. And I say, okay, I guess I can see the logic. Not sure about the player, but I get what they're going for. You know, that, that was one of the positions that decimated our team. It made our passing game really hard to establish down the stretch. I mean, you're throwing balls to guys like Marquise Goodwin, to Justin Hunter, basically anybody, basically if you could run under five seconds and we're at least six feet tall, even if you were just milling around in the in the New Era Stadium parking lot, they might have called you in to see if you want to throw a jersey on and come play on game day. That's how bad the wide receiver position got. It, it was bad, and I, I, I forget the exact statistic, but um, there, I think in the whole uh, season, there were something like six quarters where we actually had a... Uh, a starter from the beginning of the year that was on the field. So that's that's not good. No, that's not good by any stretch. And then, so here I am, I'm seeing this, and I'm trying to wrap my head around it. And then I'm like, okay, well, we've got two picks in the third. We still need that weak side, you know, with that weak side linebacker hole still hasn't been addressed. There's still good safeties out here. You know, there's a lot of different directions we could go. This draft is deep with cornerbacks. We can really make a statement here and, you know, Use these extra picks we have to get to get another couple cracks some starters. So, yep. you, so, so I have to tell you that nothing made me want to take both of my thumbs and just drive them into my eye sockets 
quite like watching us trade up to take Deion Dawkins. A, right. a guard slash tackle, kind of a tweener that I've never like. I'll be honest, I didn't bother scouting tackles because this is one that was one of the weakest position groups of this draft class. So I assume and that's one of the reasons that they uh, they went back into the second to to uh, get this guy. Um, we felt that he was he was um, the second round's best fit. For uh, Rico's uh, zone blocking scheme, uh, he was one of the best zone blockers in the draft, um, uh, second to Forrest Lamp. Um, so, well, well, hang on, but Forrest Lamp is a guard. So I guess my question for you is, did we draft him to play tackle or did we draft him to play guard? Um, <laughs> uh, 79% of the people on, on uh, Bill's Fanatics believe that Deion Dawkins will start at right tackle this season. And McDermott says that he'll be in the mix for all OT and OG positions. Wow. So he, he said right, left, tackle, guard, he'll be in the mix. So, so like, I tried to look at him um, as like, well, why would we go for the uh, guard or the tackle rather than a fast uh, will linebacker? And it turns out that after Raekwon McMillan uh, went off the board – the the drop off between between him and the next uh, will linebacker that actually had coverage ability was was pretty far. Um, it's a bad draft for offensive linemen, so you better get one early, and and that's what they did. If you think about Quanjo and Henderson, don't inspire me to to think that they'll be anywhere but a twelve step program, and that leaves Michael Ola. Yeah, Michael Ola, you know, everyone out there is going, who? Who the hell are you talking about? Yeah, we picked up a guy named Michael Ola from the, believe it or not, from the Carolina Panthers. I think last season we took him off their practice squad. Now, this is what I my takeaway. Again, I go back and I start doing analysis. I start looking at these players going, hey, I didn't think that they were even going to be on our radar because I thought I knew what our team needed. So now I'm going back and I'm looking at this guy. According to Pro Football Focus, he has the most explosive blocking out of any offensive tackle prospect in the 2017 draft. They said when you get him in the running game, he is the most dominating, aggressive blocker in the draft. He's You touched on it. He has experience in a pro-style zone blocking scheme. Okay, that makes sense then why he would appeal to our coaching staff. Yep, strong, square, mauler. Um, what I don't like, would, though, is when I read things that say that he struggles one-on-one in pass protection. And that, you know, at times he's got poor technique, he's got poor footwork, so it may relegate him to eventually having to slide inside as a guard because they don't trust him out on the edge of an offense. Now, I, I'll be honest, I literally had no idea who this guy was before the draft. And afterwards, after reading all this stuff and watching some film, I'm still kind of left doubting the pick. Given that it seems like he's got a lot of positive traits, but no one knows where he's going to play. And and I think that the, the most damning thing to me about this pick was that the Bills the Bills pick that we traded to the Falcons in order to get this. You know, we made this deal. And then with our original pick, they draft the last decent weak side linebacker in the entire class. 
I mean, I know yeah. people are tired of hearing me beat this drum about linebacker, but as we talked about earlier in the show, we have a hole there still heading into training camp. Ramon Humber does not inspire any kind of confidence in me, and neither do a pair of fifth-round draft picks to fill right. that starting position. So I guess I have to ask you, why should I believe, and why should our listeners believe, that this player was worthy of a second-round draft pick? I'll give you some. I'll give you some um, some reasons. Um, one is that um, he scored in the 98th percentile on the three cone drill, and and um, that's that's how how fast your feet can move. He had Jason Peters' feet. All right. Okay. Um, and his comp was Hugh Thornton or Dan Feeney. Oh wow! So those those would be, that that's one reason. Um, the the second thing is that they needed they needed to have um, somebody that has wide arms. He has 35 inch arms. His reach was second in his draft group to Julian Davenport, and Davenport's probably still out there. I don't know. I think um, Drew also has 35 inch arms. <laughs> everyone likes to make really? fun. Everyone likes to make fun of me, Dean, because I'm he looks fi- like a gorilla. I'm five foot eleven. Okay. I'm five foot eleven. I claim five foot eleven and a half, but no one buys it. I'm about five foot ten, and when we stand next to each other and we stick our arms out, my arms go to Drew's wrists. <laughs> <laughs> I can touch so my he has, he has I, scrape marks on the backside of his uh, uh, joints. There, on, absolutely, on absolutely. I can touch my knees while standing up straight. And okay. when, when I was a little kid. Reasons. When I was a little and kid, when I was growing up, why we didn't take the uh, the Will linebacker prospects there? Okay, Duke Riley um, struggled significantly to get off blocks. He missed nine tackles uh, in 2016, um, and that that would be, uh, compare. Uh, Matt Milano's got him beat there. Alex Anzalone, he's more of of a Sam linebacker, but um, the, the drop off between Anzalone. Who I see more as an outside linebacker. Uh, the drop off between those two and Matt Milano is less than the drop off between Dawkins and the next OT that went, which was uh, a, nearly a full round after that. It wasn't until uh, the sixth round, pick one ninety, that uh, Sam Tevi was <laughs> was picked. And so if they were looking for the prospect of getting a, ta- a tackle. Um, they pretty much had to take him there then, is what you're they saying. wanted to take him. I know that they were interested in him. Um, the, the, uh, the Bill Scouts went to Temple Games uh, more than twice. So, so we, know, we know that. And, See, it's funny because everyone went to the. We didn't want Sam Tevye. Well, I was going to say, I think everybody who saw the Bills scout, you know, kind of heard the hey, the Bill Scouts are at Temple. They're doing. I think everyone thought they were going there to see Hassan Reddick. It turns mm-hmm. out, in retrospect, they may have been scouting Deion Dawkins. Right. So I guess and, what you're saying to me, I guess, kind of makes sense. And I, <sighs> ah, Dean, you're killing me because I, I've had this just burning kind of anger inside of me over us not landing a weak side linebacker in you know in the draft. But if what you guys and what the rest of the people that we've talked to about the draft are saying is is correct, 
then Raquan McMillan might have represented the last tier of, hey, day one starter at outside linebacker in the NFL. And that the rest of the guys like your Zach Cunningham's, I mean, I was high on Zach Cunningham, but it sounds like a lot of people are doubting his ability to cover, you know, to run, you know, the different kind of pass coverages and to have the sideline to sideline speed that it's going to require to play that position. So I guess hearing it come from all of you guys is kind of like some salve in the wound for me. You know, it kind of helps me get over this. So I guess the last thing I got to ask you here tonight, Dean, is if you had to grade the Deion Dawkins pick, I gave it a C plus because I was angry about it. But I'll talking to you about why this makes sense and the comparables and everything else that's out there. I'm willing to give it a B minus. If you had to assign it a letter grade, what would you give it, Dean? Uh, I think I gave it a B plus, and and one of the th- reasons that I did was that that they had to sacrifice um, uh, round three picks to do it, and I thought that that would prevent us from taking Nate Peterman. Well, it turns out we got him too, which we, is funny we got, because we got him so late that I that um see I had us taking Peterman at seventy five, and and if anybody checks the the uh, draft tech. Um, Sites. Most of the time, I was picking Peterman with that 75th pick because we didn't have a fourth rounder. No, absolutely. So, and I'll be honest, when I, when I was looking, everything I read said that Peterman was supposed to be a third-round draft pick. So the fact that we got him in the fifth feels like a steal. And it's awesome because next week, WGR 550's Nate Geary is going to be on our show to talk to us specifically about the job he did in scouting Nate Peterman. Yeah, he, did a whole thing, he did a whole thing uh, for CoverOne.net pre-draft. So I think it must be feel good for for Geary to put all in all this work on Peterman and do all this film work, and then we literally draft him. So I mean, because that has to feel like kind of a long shot. You know, you pick one of these you know secondary to tertiary quarterbacks, and you just look at what he's got. I, I, I guess the fact that he put that work in, and then we actually drafted him. That's that's got to feel pretty good. And when you do the same, I'm assuming that for you personally, when you have a player rated highly. Uh, and, you know, you guys at Draft Tech, you put all this work in. When you see that your board falls the way that you guys kind of expected it would, that has to feel pretty good, right? Yeah, we, we, we actually set a record this year. We, we, um, the Huddle Report runs a, a draft contest every year um, for um, how many of your big board top 100 are drafted. Mm-hmm. And and we and we hit eighty nine percent this year, wow. um, and and that and that blew Mel Kiper out of the water. We were actu- we were actually uh, third, and our best performance up till now uh, had been fourth. So I blew we, we Mel Kiper out of the, the water, and I was drunk. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Be, uh, Mel Kiper looks like a fat Count Chocula. I'll be honest with you. He just you look at his tail. His widow's peak gets bigger and his nose gets more beak like every year. I don't understand it. <laughs> oh, I hate that guy. Well, Dean, that that that's impressive. I mean, just your guy's success over there at Draft Tech. I mean, it speaks to the fact that you guys really do kind of know your scouting and that you guys know what you're doing. Now, for all of our listeners out there who want to follow Dean, Dean, follow your work. Where can they yep. find your stuff? I mean, I mean, are you, let us know where to follow you on Twitter, and why, why don't you give okay. us the, uh, the website information? All right, uh, drafttech.com has two T's in it. That's that's the be- best place, I think. Um, the I on Twitter, I am tcbills underscore astro, 
The reason it's Astro is that I write the Astro notes on what happened in training camp every day and post them on the forum at Two Bills Drive. Oh, nice. So if you see Astro notes, that's me. I'm always in the stands, and I'm always in the top right corner, and I'm the only dude in the whole place with a clipboard. So I'm easy to talk. Well, I'll be honest. I'm not, I'm not meaning to steal your thunder, but Chris and I are going to be there this summer doing a lot of work. We will definitely make sure we come out and say hi. All right, Dean? Oh, you'll, 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 know, you'll, you'll know where I am. Fantastic. <laughs> Dean, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I really appreciate it. hope I talked you off the ledge. <laughs> you did. You did, my friend. Here at the Rock Pal Report, we like to diversify. You know, we don't like to just keep, you know, obviously we could t- sit here and talk about the bills until the cows come home. Diversification. <laughs> I, d- diversification. That's a Bushism. I, I, I believe that that is a, it's it's a Bushism. Old, it's an old wooden ship. <laughs> it's a Bushism. <laughs> Diversity. Just add if I, if, if I, if Kate on the end of any word and it's a George Bushism. Diversificate? Yeah. In any event, we don't just focus on the Buffalo Bills here because, I mean, there's a ton going around, around, in our division that I think we all need to be aware of. So with that being said, you know, usually we try to go around the division when it comes to games. We always try to go around the division when it comes to the draft as well. And here to help us do that, we're going to help break down this week, the New York Jets draft. Kyle Smith. Quarterback is a position of concern for the Jets. Lots of Jets fans, they love him. They really hype him up. AFC East Bros Podcast. Smith, everybody. Welcome to the Rock Pile Report. Long time no see, brother. Drew, Chris, thanks for having me. Man, the new intro kind of sounds like I'm walking down the aisle WWE style. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Like you're, I don't know, better than Yokozuna, probably. Oh, de- definitely. I don't know how he's top five. <laughs> oh. He might not be top 50 in my book. Linger longer. So in, the, in any event, Kyle... So you guys obviously, you know, on your show, I know you guys have been talking a lot about the draft. Thanks for coming on with us tonight. The reason I want to have you on here is because as Bills fans, I'll be honest, I didn't really give a ton of attention to the Jets draft class. I didn't. But I think it's important for us and, you know, not only our listeners, but also me to know what you guys, you know, what the fan base is feeling, you know, what you guys think you accomplished and what your takeaways from this draft were. So first and foremost, in the first round, you guys got what has been labeled as the safest player in this year's draft in Jamal Adams, the strong safety out of LSU. Now, is there a lot? Has your sense been that there's a lot of excitement among the fan base for that pick? Uh, for the most part, yes. Uh, people people were so disenchanted with what happened with the jets last year, the lack of leadership, as I explained to you guys before, mm-hmm. you know, supposed leaders like Muhammad Wilkerson get a fresh new contract, supposed to be a high character guy. He's not even showing up for meetings. And apparently that's been going on for a couple of years now. A lot of people are excited because all right, you get a young leader in, I mean, his, his nickname, even on Instagram and stuff is the president. So jets fans are already calling him the president. They think that he's going to come in, you know, bring a whole kind of new culture shock he's going to be a leader all of a sudden when the jets really had none of that in recent years 
But on top of that, he's a really damn good player, too. And I think you would attest to that. I think this is the guy that you wanted at number 10, if I'm not mistaken. So, yes, overall, there is a lot of excitement. But then there are some people like, we went defense again? Really? Since 2009 or since 2010, every single year in the first round, we went defense, defense, defense. Even in 2013, we had two first-round picks, both of which were defensive players. Another one was a bust from Alabama figures. (laughs) (laughs) So there are some people like, and a safety is, I mean, yeah, he's safe, and yeah, he'll probably be a good player, but is a strong safety really great value at six? But I would say those people, they are the minority. Most are excited. Now, me personally, I loved the pick. And I'll tell you why. It gives your defense scheme flexibility. I mean, Todd Bowles, when he was hired by you guys, he was touted as a, a defensive coach. You know, he, he was a guy who could coach. He came from, you know, a, a system where he coached up some very successful defenses. And I think that's what led to him ultimately winning the head coaching job was they saw the strength of the teams that he, you know, the defenses that he coached. And I feel like some of that's kind of fallen by the wayside since he came to the New York Jets. But I think that you can blame a lot of that on Rex Ryan and the previous regime altogether because they really didn't give him. I mean, his cupboard wasn't fully stocked and it's gotten even more bare over the last couple seasons. I mean, can you agree with me on that point? Oh, yes, 100%. So drafting a guy like Adams who can play in the he, he has the speed to play a deep safety role. But he's got physicality. He loves to be around the line of scrimmage. He can force fumbles, force turnovers. He, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say force turnovers. His interception numbers weren't all that great. But his forced fumbles were incredible when you see some of them happen in live action. And just the way that he you know, kind of patrols the box makes him a dangerous player. You know, I, I feel like with him, you guys are getting the guy that you wanted Kelvin Pryor to be. Uh, he better be much more than whatever we <laughs> hoped Calvin Pryor would be. I mean, Calvin Pryor, I hated that pick. I always hated it, and I hate it even more the longer he stays on this roster. I mean, Calvin Pryor, you were – I think when the Jets drafted him, they really thought they were going to get this big, you know, hard-hitting type of safety, which, you know, he can lay a nice lick every now and then. Just think of what he did to Rashard Matthews when he broke his ribs a couple years ago. Yeah. But Calvin Pryor's got nothing side to side. You throw a swing pass to a running back, Calvin Pryor is not going to chase him down. He'll probably whiff on that tackle. No, no. Jamal Adams, you know. He lives you near hope, the line of scrimmage. Go ahead. He, oh, I was going to say, he, you, I, I've watched enough Jamal Adams from being just a huge SEC fan. He, you, you try to play in the flats against Jamal Adams, and he has the speed and the ability to hit. That You throw the swing pass to a running back like that, a lot of those plays go for negative yardage. You know, he has the speed and the physicality to force a lot of negative plays. Not only that, but your running back's going to get up thinking to himself, maybe I shouldn't catch that next time. Maybe maybe I'll let the next one go. Yes, absolutely. And he's just so much more versatile than like a prior. I'm looking at the pro football focus stats of 2016, his total snap breakdown. He played 41% of snaps at free safety, 32% at corner. 14% at linebacker, 13% at strong safety. So the dude is definitely versatile. And, you know, there are some people that said, like, listen, if, if Adams was a corner, you know, he could be a first, second-round cornerback prospect. So, you know, I think he does give you a lot of versatility there. So overall, I like the pick. It's the only pick that probably gets me a little bit excited, but it's still not what I would have done at six, to okay. be honest. Okay, so then what is your overall grade if you had to slap a letter grade on it? For Jamal Adams, I'd probably give the pick a B-plus in my mind. Wow. See, I gave it an A-plus. If he had been there for our defense, I would have applauded that. I would have thrown a chair. I would have yelled at Chris, and then I would have probably just drank myself into a stupor. 
just celebrated until the sun came up. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. For I guess but you for, guys got an extra first round pick. And I guess I should pick. say, fortunately for everyone else around me, that's not what happened. So then, moving on to the second round. Now, this is where your draft kind of got interesting to me. You know, I'm sitting there, I'm on stage, we're at Batavia Downs uh, doing a draft TV show, and we're trying. You know, we're talking, we're kind of analyzing what you know team needs as the picks are coming up, and we're making small talk about divisional opponents. And I see the pick come up of Marcus May. See another safety out of the University of Florida. Now he is more of a free safety than he is a strong safety, and I just—I I guess I got to ask, what do you think about the decision to go back-to-back first and second rounds to take two safeties? I hate this pick. I really hate it. And at first, I was kind of like, uh, because I hadn't watched Mar- much of Marcus May pre-draft, and people like Connor Rogers—he was super high on him. Matt Miller. Super high on him. So I kind of leaned on them. All right. Like, I, I like these guys. I trust these guys' evaluations. I was watching a lot of Marcus May tape today. And after the draft, I started watching a little bit more. I just don't see it. I mean, what are you, what are you drafting there? Yeah, he, you say he's more of a free safety. I don't see him making these ball hawking type of plays. You know, I don't see any type of range that, you know, equates to like Malik Hooker. And I love the free safety with range. And, you know, people are saying like, you know, He's really physical. And by the way, the Jets homers are, are coming at me on Twitter now because I've been criticizing Marcus May today. Um, they're going to say like, oh, you don't think he's a physical safety? Have you watched his highlights? Have you watched him hit Leonard Fournette? No, listen. Go to my Twitter account a- at AFC East Bros. And I tweeted out a couple GIF images of Marcus May just standing around, not wanting to throw his, his helmet into a pile. He's sitting there watching three, four teammates get a gang tackle, a ball carrier. Meanwhile, he's just sitting and pussyfooting back there. I don't think this is a very uh, physical safety. I don't think he's a safety that has much range. I don't see the value at 39. If you're drafting a safety at 39, he better be a damn good safety. There were so many other players I would have taken there. Not to mention the fact that you just took a safety at six. So, yeah, I guess you're trying to, you're trying to, you know, you know, vie up the secondary. You know, you had, you had a bad secondary last year. It was really, really bad. So I get going secondary back-to-back rounds, but there's a lot of corners I would have taken there. And you know to think about it, Drew, you're an SEC guy. You watch a lot of SEC mm-hmm. football. I would have taken Quincy Wilson, a no, long press ab- corner, absolutely. over him. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm sitting there watching Marcus May, and T's Tabor is jumping off at the tape much more to me than Marcus May. And I don't know if I would have taken T's Tabor at 39. If he was there in the third round for us, I might have considered it, but – you know, that guy to me seems like a much more better player than May, and he's at a much more valuable position, too. So there's probably, I'm looking at, I'm like, there's two Florida players, two Florida defensive backs that I would have taken over Marcus May at pick 39. What was your reaction when the pick happened? I was just like, really? Really? Marcus May? Really? I mean, I was kind of hoping for Kaiser there, or if not, I was hoping for uh, Sidney Jones. Uh, Quincy Wilson, as I said, I really wanted Derek Rivers there because we haven't had an edge rusher, a true bender off the edge since John Abraham. Mm-hmm. And we still don't have that. We might have guys that can maybe get to the quarterback from like a three technique. You can maybe even line them up at one technique and they can get their five technique. But you don't got a true bender off the edge. Jets just have not had that. And I think that Derek Rivers could be that. And I think he's good value at 39. We passed up on him. And we also passed up on him in the third round to draft your boy, or Darius Stewart. Oh, my boy. So before we talk about him, slap a letter grade on this Marcus May thing so we can put it to bed since you seem to hate this pick. I, 
I'll go C minus, and maybe oh. that's being a little generous for the, as much as I criticize them. C minus, maybe even D plus. So in the third round, you guys are on the clock, and I'm sitting there. We're you know we're sitting on stage. We're talking again. You know, we're just amongst me and the guys who are on the show, and we're talking about what your team needs still are. And I'm looking here and I'm laughing because I'm like, well, there's still linebackers. There's still all these players out there. They need offensive linemen. They need all kinds of stuff because they they haven't re- – so they basically addressed a hole on the roster and then addressed it a second time, which I just felt like was poor usage of their picks. And apparently you agree with me. So then when I saw our Darius Stewart's name come up on the screen, I I, I was mad I mean, it kind of could go either way for me because on one hand, now I have to root against this player. You know, I'm I'm sick of this. With Dante Hightower from Alabama, he goes to the Patriots. Now I'm forced to root against you and your entire career, at least until you switch teams in free agency. Our Darius Stewart's in the same bucket, and I like that player. I like him. But at the same time, I don't think he makes any sense for your team. Not at that. Not Not in the third round, not with who was left on the board. Okay, not with the positions of way further importance to you to you guys. Not only as a just a team next season, but down the road, I just feel like there was other places you should could have and should have gone. Whether it was offensive line, whether it was you know, the hell, there were still good defensive linemen on the board. What about there, quarterback? They're there, pretty good at that. There was linebackers. I think after Kaiser, the drop off at quarterback was pretty steep. So they actually, mm-hmm. I don't criticize them for not taking a quarterback with this pick, but I just don't get the fit. I mean, what do you? What are your thoughts on this? And Drew, we're lockstep with this, man. I mean, look at—he's 23 years old, so you're not getting a young player. Yeah, he's a good leader, and I think that's one of the—I think that factored big into this Jets draft. They drafted a lot of quote high character guys. They knew the cancerous type of atmosphere that they had in the locker room. So let's draft a whole bunch of high character guys. But I'm sorry. High character guys don't necessarily win you Super Bowls. You need a couple of them. You need good leadership. That can win you Super Bowls. But you're not going to win a Super Bowl with a bunch of high character guys that really aren't great talents. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I could step into a locker room and be a good leader. But the fact is, is I can't play. And what he's 23 years old. I'm looking at his mock draft right now. He's short. He's 5'11", 204 pounds. I know he plays bigger than that. Oh, four, yeah. four, nine. I mean, the dude is a small dude. And But when you look at his tape, dude, the guy never was pressed in college. He never was going off press coverage. You, how can you – uh, you're drafting a receiver in the third round. You want to see that he's got some type of route tree, or you want to see that he runs some type of route really good. And I, I just don't see that with Stewart. I mean, like he, he never had to defeat the press off the line of scrimmage. I'll be honest. He's, I watched every game of. I, I, I watched every. I hate to cut you off. I'm sorry. I watched every game of Stewart's career. I will be the first one to admit that I love that player. I would have liked him for the Bills, say the fourth, the fifth round, if he was still there. I would have applauded that move to bring him in and make him, you know. A player for our team. We talked a little bit earlier on the show about I'm not really a huge fan of the Zay Jones pick. You know, when it happened, I was lukewarm on it. So, but looking back at it, if you had told me, hey, well, the Jets drafted our Darius Stewart in the third round, I feel a lot better about the Zay Jones pick in the second than I do about this. Because one of the things our Darius Stewart has, and you just hit the nail on the head, he did get pressed, and I think a lot of that stems from the fact that he's so elusive when he gets into space that college defensive coordinators were they, they were afraid. You know, they were afraid of hey, if we let this guy because we still have to keep Kelvin you know pace with Kelvin Ridley on the other side. If we let him get into the open field, he can make people miss and he can make a lot of big plays after the fact. But you're right; no one ever just pressed him at the line of scrimmage. 
And so coming into the NFL where corner, you're going to be tested almost every single snap on offense. I think without he's one of those guys who needs a good number one and maybe even a good number two to thrive at the NFL level. And it's kind of a stupid philosophy when you think about it, because when you don't press him and you give him all that open space, because you look at most of his big catches, he's just running into big, wide open zones. Yep. You're giving him all that extra space after the catch so he can, you know, continue to use his elusive moves and stuff. Kind of a stupid strategy. Whereas if, you know, he's a smaller guy getting his face, it's going to be harder for him to defeat that press. I don't really see it, to be honest. But as you said, you need a number one or a number two to really supplant him because he's not going to be the guy to get it done on his own. And I think like when you look at most of his plays, it's a lot of those type of um, those weird speed toss plays or whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a lot of, you know, short screens, bubble screens, a lot of short slants that he finds a way to juke someone in the open field. Those types of plays aren't going to be readily available at the NFL level. They're just not. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, is, is the Jets did a lot of that with Quincy Inunua the pe- previous two seasons, and he was pretty damn good at it. Um, so now you figure Brandon Marshall's gone. You don't know what you have in Eric Decker coming off two surgeries. I think the goal for the Jets is to move Quincy more to the outside and to start put Ardarius in that role because Quincy was a really good blocker for the Jets, mm-hmm. and they kind of used Quincy in that H-back role. And our, one thing about Ardarius, he's a really good blocker. Oh, so I think they're going to kind of put ferocious. him in that role. But again, is that worth a third-round pick? In my mind, <laughs> it's not. I would say no. So that brings us to this. Now, we talked about the top three picks you guys made. Give me your favorite pick of the draft and your least favorite pick of the draft for the New York Jets. Uh, I'm going to say my favorite pick would be the Jamal Adams pick just because I, I think he's going to be a damn good player. I think he's going to be on the cusp of the Pro Bowl every single season. So, you know, you can't beat that. Can't really be mad at that. In terms of least favorite, Dylan Donahue, West Georgia. He's almost 25 years old. He's not super freaky athletic. I mean, he's 6'3", maybe. He's got super short arms. He's light in the tail. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't have a good 40 time. He doesn't have good jumps. And he's coming from what? What is that, Division Two football? Mm-hmm. So I, I just don't see how this guy's really going to be anything more than, you know, a situational pass rusher at best. I mean, fifth-round pick, typically it's going to be hard to get a good edge rusher anyway. But I don't see it with this kid. Yeah, he's got a high motor. Again, another high character guy. But really, if you wanted to address edge rusher, you could have had guys early on. This draft was, you know, might not have been super top heavy in terms of edge rushers, but you had guys there for the take in in the first couple rounds. So I, mm-hmm. I, I don't see it at all with that pick. Fifth no, round you pick. could have addressed it with that second round pick that you took a second safety in. I mean, you could have you taken. Could, you could have had Tim Williams out of Alabama, who could have, has proven that he's an edge rusher. Obviously, you, you got to drop. The third round. You could have had Rivers in the third round too. Instead, yep. we traded back. We got our. Even if we traded back, we, we we dropped back nine spots. We still could have taken both Williams and Rivers at seventy nine, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And yeah. the fact that you didn't, I mean, that's. I don't know what the philosophy is there. Yeah, listen to Drew. Well, what you should have done is take another <laughs> Alabama player. <laughs> oh, it's that damn roll tide bias. Yeah. So I guess I, I, you sound very pessimistic about this entire draft. I got to ask, what is your if you had to give a draft grade for the entirety of your draft, where would you rank it? Uh, I'll say a C. Ooh. I'll say a C. And, and that doesn't sound good. Yes, the Jets, they walked away with a couple extra picks. But they were so desperate to trade down. They knew that they had a depleted roster. They knew that they wanted to get a bunch of young guys in. And, and light, in all likelihood, because you have so many not good veterans, 
you'd have these young guys make the team. They tried so hard to get this extra draft capital, but even when they did trade back, it's not like they really got good value. If you look at most of those draft pick calculator charts, the Jets were not – they were getting you know pennies on the dollar. It's not like they were getting great value at all. Mm-hmm. They were so desperate to trade back, and I think that when they did so, they passed up on good players, for example, in the third round. Uh, I, I just – I'm not too happy. There's the, the only pick that really gets me is the Adams pick. And I look at some of the other ones like Chad Hansen, like, yeah, he looks cool. Like a white boy with some swagger goes up and gets the ball. That's fun. But he's a fourth-round pick. What is he really going to be? Even The thing is, is we have a bunch of young, you know, talented wide receivers anyway. I wouldn't say – I would say that's less – that's mm-hmm. not one of our bigger needs anyway. So you go back-to-back receivers in the third or fourth round. Yes, like the players might be contributors for you. But it's not really big positions of need, and I don't think they're going to be great players at the next level anyway. So, <laughs> well, Kyle, I'm sorry that you, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry that you're pessimistic about your draft. That actually makes me feel a lot better about ours. <laughs> now, the last question I'm going to ask you before we get out of here tonight: Looking back at the draft and how your roster is taking shape heading into training camp, way too early estimate on your 2017 record. Better or worse than 2016? I'm going to say worse. The schedule seems to be harder based on early projections. And, of course, we always don't know what those are going to be. I mean, we were looking at last year's schedule and saying, oh, man, the Cardinals, man, that's going to be a powerhouse. And we all know that they weren't really nothing last year. So it's kind of hard to predict. But indications are schedule's tougher this year. We're playing the NFC South. Falcons were in the Super Bowl. Panthers still got Cam Newton. Saints should be on the upswing. You know, so and obviously look at what Tampa Bay is doing, man. They're giving Jameis Winston all those weapons. They're on the upswing too. So it's going to be a harder schedule this year. I'm going to say worse. I mean, mm. who are we trotting out at quarterback? Say what you want about <laughs> Fitzpatrick, but you know, Fitzpatrick, you know, he could, I guess, kind of steer the ship sometimes. He couldn't be a some games. He wasn't a total train wreck. For example, that Buffalo game. But I could realistically see. You know, McCown getting hurt, as he always does, Hackenberg coming in, and just being a total train wreck. I could very well see that. Well, if there's anything I can do here to send you away from our show tonight with something of a pat on the back, the Bills were in this similar situation a few years ago. We were going into training camp with a Tyrod Taylor, with a EJ Manuel, and with a Matt Castle. All fighting for a starting job. And I had to sit there and watch ESPN where Mark Schlereth flat out declared that they're, you know, they asked who the question, who was going to be the starting quarterback for the Buffalo Bills. And Mark Schlereth said that we just don't have one. He refused to pick one. We, ha- I had to deal with that. Luckily, some guy stepped forward. And ultimately, hopefully for you guys, maybe the same situation. Maybe someone does step forward for you guys. I mean, that's literally the only silver lining that you have to look forward to come training camp, right? You know, we got a couple of nice defensive players, and, you know, we got some Quincy and Noon one stuff. So there's, there's some things to be excited about, but we have one of the worst rosters in the league with no quarterback play and subpar coaching. So it's, it's not going to be a pretty season. But if there is a silver lining for Jets fans, hey, that might lead you to the number one overall pick. And as the experts are saying, this is the year of the quarterback. Ah, oh, you so. son of a bitch! If you guys, if you guys find a way to somehow beat us out on the next, you know, the next Aaron Rodgers, just because you guys assembled a crap, like somehow we've sucked for forever, but then when it mattered, you found a way to suck worse than us. I'll hate you. I'll hate your franchise forever. 
especially the year that you have the two first round draft picks too. <laughs> Kyle, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find you guys on Twitter and where they can find your podcast? I'm on Twitter at AFC East Bros. Hey, listen, if you can't handle criticism about your team, I might not be the follow for you. Um, <laughs> and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and we're on YouTube as well. So, Fantastic. Thanks. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, yep. Chris. Take care. And there you have it, folks. The uh, Straight from the horse's mouth, a Jets fan who doesn't believe that their season is going to be any more prosperous than ours is. I mean, they hate our draft. He hates their draft more than I hated ours. But I feel a little bit better about it now in retrospect, and I'm glad that you know tonight we had a chance to go over all this because, in all honesty, it's like therapy for me. We do have weekend uh, the rookie mini camp coming up this weekend, so Zay Jones and Dawkins will hopefully put something on display to at least alter your position. Apparently, apparently they're going to get out there on the field, and hopefully, like I said, hopefully, come training camp, I've changed my mind about their picks. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm gonna, I reserve judgment until I actually get to see him play some live ball. Guys, we're gonna get out of here, but before we do, download our show, (laughs) iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, any podcatcher, get it. If you're on, if you get it from iTunes, five star rate and review. If you don't think it's a five star podcast, you keep that shit to yourself. And what he's trying to say is if you don't think we're a five-star review, I'd like you to tell us why. I love constructive criticism. Second of all, follow us on Twitter, at Rockpile Report. As for our guests, at Rockpile, well, you can follow uh, Dean at, at TCBills underscore Astro. You can follow Kyle at AFC East Bros. And you know what? You can follow Chris Gregg at Greg 80 Chris Gregg on Twitter. I mean, like I said, I'm taking this on a day-by-day basis. I don't understand why he's not getting more love, and I'm going to make it my personal mission to at least try to get his name heard, whether it's by the Bills, whether it's by anybody. Drew is not on the bandwagon. He's driving it. <laughs> and, folks, you, you don't want to miss next week's show because we are going to have Nate Geary in here in studio from WGR 550. And cover one. He's going to join us so that we can kind of extrapolate on this GM conversation and also talk about his personal breakdown on our fifth-round pick, Nathan Peterman. Yeah, you can find that at CoverOne.net, his breakdown on Nate Peterman. Guys, it's been a blast. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And this has been the Rockbell Report.